Ephesians chapter 6, and our topic is Standing Against the Devil, part 3, and we finally come to the elements of the armor. And I'm going to read, start, starting at verse 11. <clears throat> Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And here's the beginning out of our text today, verse 14, and we'll look at the girding the waist with truth today. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And we'll stop there. So if Paul's main proposition stated, and he does so twice for emphasis, and the reasons given, why his command is so necessary, he repeats his main exhortation for verse 11, and turns his attention to the exposition of the various parts of this armor. Verse 13, we read, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So this topic is so important that he repeats himself for emphasis, and we find that often in Scripture. With a little variation and some new thoughts. The put on is changed to take up, both of which emphasize our responsibility as Christians to use the means that God has given us for spiritual warfare. The word therefore ties this verse to what precedes. <clears throat> so, to paraphrase, Paul is saying, because the devil and his minions are so clever, subtle, and insidious, and their power to work evil is so strong, you must take up and put on the whole armor of God to stand up against their assaults. Now the word to stand means to stand up to and be victorious. To stand against and be victorious. The expression in the evil day refers to times of temptation and assault. When our Lord was about to suffer his greatest time of suffering and affliction, he said to his satanic persecutors, this is in the garden, after, they, after he was praying with his disciples. And he says this to the evil persecutors, This is your hour and the power of darkness. Luke twenty two fifty three. The Psalms <coughs> repeatedly refer to a time of trial or temptation as the evil day or the time of evil. Here's Psalm 41, 1. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. Psalm 49.5 Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? <clears throat> so there are days or times of evil in which we must face the power of evil in a concentrated manner when the conflict is most severe. Now, from Satan's perspective, it's a temptation. From God's perspective, it's for us, it's a test. Will you ha handle the test? Like Israel in the wilderness failed the test. They died in the wilderness, and it was their children, the next generation that went into the promised land. <clears throat> These are times in which we are especially tested, when we face greater trials and temptations. These are the times when we need the whole armor of God, most of all. <clears throat> now, Paul does not have in mind here the days of Christ's second coming or the day we die, but the days of temptation throughout life. And then Paul ends the second introduction with having done all to stand. And this means that we must do everything which the satanic assault demands. We must take every precaution, make every preparation, put on every piece of armor that God provides if we are to be victorious.
a relaxation of discipline, or a carelessness regarding our armor will leave us open for demonic attack. Okay, the Christian life is a life of watchfulness it's, and prayer. It's a, it's a life of being ready for these attacks, for they will come. It's inevitable. But the, the question is, are you ready when they do come? In warfare, <clears throat> those who plan the battles always look for the weakest place to attack. Therefore, we cannot afford to have any work uh, weak areas. In the demonic assaults against us, we must first withstand and then remain standing. Withstand and remain standing. If we are habitually obedient to this command, we will have confidence throughout the whole course of life. There is no attack that we can overcome without the power of God. If we fall down on the day of battle, it will only be because we have ignored this crucial teaching. <clears throat> so ask yourself, Am I carefully, soberly, and diligently preparing for such evil days? And the, if not, then now is the time to repent and put off such foolish carelessness and lukewarmness. Live every day as if a serious assault could come at any moment. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves, James one twenty two. And remember the words of Christ. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock, on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Matthew seven twenty four and 25. So now we turn to the full armor described. <clears throat> In Paul's description, he lists seven items. that make up a Christian's armor. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. Now some scholars believe that the idea for using armor in this manner comes from the book of Isaiah. And I think that's probably correct, especially when we look at both passages. And for example, in Isaiah 11.5, which describes the greatness of the coming Messiah, we read, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And in this passage especially, Isaiah 59, 17, which is another messianic passage. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. So in the case of righteousness and helmet, Paul follows Isaiah precisely. Now regarding this list and the apostles' use of armor, there are a few important things to keep in mind. <clears throat> First, the list is a very uh, vivid literary device used to teach crucial spiritual truths. And therefore, one must not speculate or overanalyze each military item. For example, why is righteousness a breastplate and not a helmet or a shield? We don't want to overanalyze an analogy. <clears throat> Second, the list is obviously not exhaustive, but rather briefly covers many important areas in which a serious Christian must concern himself. These are crucial areas. And then third, even though most of the military items are defensive, and the idea of standing firm sounds defensive, we must not infer that Paul is teaching that believers are to sit still and not move forward in an offensive manner. The standing that the Apostle describes, verses 11 and 14, is not a standing still, like the wall of a fortress, but rather is that of a soldier in full battle armor moving forward against the forces of evil. And I should have put it here, but remember that verse. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. I'm paraphrasing. Who's on the attack? Who's on the offensive? Well, the church is supposed to be. And the gates of hell can't stand against it because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God behind us. 
The whole Christian life is one of putting off sinful habits and evil. For example, the old man, which grows corrupt. Ephesians 4.22 and following. Lying, unlawful anger, stealing, corrupt speech, etc. And putting on righteous behaviors. The new man, which grows in holiness. Speaking the truth in love. Biblical communication. Working hard. Helping others. Good speech that edifies, etc. In their place. It's also Ephesians 4. On the social level, there is the avoidance of corrupt companions, companions and fleeing temptations. But there is also speaking the gospel to unbelievers and working to implement a biblical culture and law orders. That is, believers as salt and light to society, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And Jesus commands us, you are to be a salt and light to culture, to the society around you. What does salt do? Well, salt was used to preserve meat. It kept it from spoiling. Christians, true Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are the antidote to keep society from rot, cultural and ethical rot, which we're witnessing take place, especially since the 1920s. And now we're to the point where civil magistrates openly praise gross wickedness, homosexuality, sodomite marriage is an abomination, uh, theft, theft, because they say, well, that's because uh, they were oppressed and they're committing theft because they're an oppressed people, which is a form of Marxism, etc. So this is very important to be a salt and light to culture. Remember, <coughs> that was Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Remember, whole nations are to be discipled and brought into a loving submission to Christ and his law word, as the Great Commission teaches. We must withstand the enemies of Jesus' kingdom by not entering a temptation, not compromising one iota with evil, not syncretizing with the heathen around us, saying no to sin, as we gain ground for the glorified Redeemer by practicing daily righteousness, covenant faithfulness, raising up a godly seed, applying the word of God to business in every area of life, etc. <coughs> you show me a professing Christian who hangs out with unbelievers, and I'll show you somebody who's backsliding and on the road to apostasy. I'm serious. You show me a guy who claims to be a Christian, he's dating unbelieving women, I'll show you somebody on the road to hell. If we don't put these principles into practice faithfully every day, habitually, we're moving backwards. In fact, the best defense is a vigorous offense. Paul, the other apostles and the evangelists were invading the devil's territory and were plundering his goods. They were not seeking a position of neutrality with culture, the law, or society, but were turning the established order upside down through the gospel and the whole counsel of God. <coughs> now, it took many years. It took centuries. But pagan Rome, a very evil state, a very e wicked empire, became Christian Europe. Did Christian Europe have many problems? Yes. There were many doctrinal deficiencies in the church, and that caused many problems in the state. But child sacrifice was eliminated. The worship of idols was eliminated. Slavery was eliminated. Branding of people on the faces in torture in the courts was eliminated. The gladiatorial games were eliminated. It was an incredible uplift to society over paganism. And as Christianity fades away in our culture, we're going back to barbarity and paganism. Abortion is praised which is nothing other than murdering babies. <clears throat> it's murdering infants. And it's every bit as wicked in God's sight as the Holocaust of murdering six million Jews. Well, let's look at the first one, girded with truth, and we'll spend the rest of the today on this one. <clears throat> After his instruction, Paul discusses each spiritual item that is a part of the full armor. Excuse me. He begins with truth. Verse 14a. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The word girded, or the old King James has girt, G-I-R-T. Girded would be in the new King James, probably the new American standard. Greek, perizonumai, means to fasten one's belt, if you're going to put it in modern English. Now to understand the picture here, we need to note how a first century Roman or person in Asia Minor would dress. Asia Minor is modern Turkey. It was a, 
That's where most of Paul's work was done. <clears throat> the outer clothing that people wore was very loose. Kind of like a, you see somebody walking around in a robe. It was a very loose-fitting cloak that reached all the way down to the ankles. If a man was about to engage in labor or fight in battle, the loose garment had to be pulled up above the knees and then fastened securely around the waist. <clears throat> this girding was the first thing one needed to do before any vigorous function. For this reason, during the first Passover, as the covenant people were waiting for God's sign to depart, they were to eat the Passover by girding. By first, eat, they were to eat girded. They were to have everything ready to get up and take, take off immediately. Gird up your loins. That's Exodus 12, uh, Exodus 12, 11. And there are, many, there are other passages. For example, look at 1 Kings 18, 46. Now, even though Roman soldiers' tunics were relatively short, they were right above the knee, not down to the ankle. <clears throat> the belt was crucial for freedom of movement and stability. Consequently, this expression is perfect for conveying the idea of mental and spiritual readiness and stability. The man of the world is deceitful, we're told, Ephesians 4.22. Floats about with every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14, because he has no solid fixed core. He floats about with whatever fad there is. We see this with our politicians. When abortion is unpopular, they're anti-abortion. When abortion is popular, they're pro-abortion. When homosexuality is unpopular, they're anti-homosexuality. When homosexuality becomes accepted and popular culturally, all of a sudden they're pro-homosexual. They have no core. And Biden, for example, everything he says is virtually everything he says is a lie. He just will say anything to gain favor. There's no core. There's no fixedness. If pressed Christians do not know the truth or do not sincerely believe in the truth as it is revealed in scripture they will not be able to they will not be able to stand against satan and the demonic hosts now of course sincerity true belief is necessary but if it is not connected to the truth of scripture it is worthless Muslim terrorists and communists, revolutionaries, may be very sincere to the point where they're willing to die for their cause, but their sincerity leads them to commit murder and go straight to hell. They're sincere. They have a belief, but they're wrong. They don't have the truth. They don't have the Bible. Faith is necessary, but faith must be connected to the truths of Scripture, or it also is useless. There's all these Christian preachers well, quote, supposedly Christian preachers on the internet talking about faith. And like Joel Osteen, it's faith in faith. It's, it's basically the power of positive thinking. That's not what the Bible talks about. Faith must have the proper object. It must, have, it must believe in the truth. It must believe in Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures. A papist faith uh, in the Virgin Mary or the Mormon's faith in Joseph Smith is not helpful but totally harmful. Mary was a godly woman, but she, was, she did not remain a virgin after Christ was born. She had other sons and daughters. And James the Just was Jesus' brother. But to worship her and pray to her as though she's a co-mediatrix with God is blasphemous. It's idolatry. Genuine faith requires the proper objects of faith, which presupposes a correct knowledge and interpretation of Scripture. We believe in Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. I forgot to write down the passage, but that's Corinthians. Not the Christ of our imagination and not, not the Christ of the cults, Islam, premillennialism, pre, uh, excuse me, uh, Pharisaical Judaism, Islam, Pharisaical Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, etc. We must believe in and follow all of God's moral laws revealed in scripture. Revealed truth, not the humanistic, antinomian, satanic version of Protestant liberals, which we call modernists, 
or the reductionist or legalistic ver version of dispensationalists. Oh, the Old Testament law, that's for another era. That's for the Old Testament. Well, no, the moral, yeah, the ceremonial laws and some of the laws that were peculiar to Israel, yeah, that was for the Old Testament. But the moral laws, because they're based on God's nature and character, or they're based on God's command and they're designed to be eternal and universal, they, they always apply. And they still apply today. <clears throat> and you'll hear these people on the internet who don't know the Bible at all, these atheists, and they'll, they'll laugh at the Bible. Well, you know, they were forbidden to eat pork in the Old Testament. We don't take that seriously. So if you want to be a homosexual and have sodomite marriage, that's great. Go ahead. No. The command to eat pork was a ceremonial law for a particular reason in the Old Testament economy. But homosexuality and things related to sexual immorality are eternal laws. They're moral laws. <clears throat> we need sound knowledge plus revealed truth plus genuine faith to direct us in the proper path of warfare. All of these things, Christian orthodoxy, genuine faith, and the habitual obedience of faith are absolutely necessary for perseverance and victory throughout life. Now Paul, well Saul, he was still called Saul, when he was the Pharisee, was very sincere when he was going about persecuting and murdering Christians and taking their property and murdering them. He was a fanatic. He was totally sincere. He believed he was serving God. But he was serving Satan at that time, not God. Jehu appeared quite sincere in his quest to stamp out idolatry, but his own personal hypocrisy and pride destroyed an original goal. And he ended up wicked. So we always tie faith and sincerity to the truth, as it is revealed in Scripture. You know, this idea, well, sincerity is the only important thing. Well, that's existentialism. That's Kierkegaard. That's not the Bible. You know, if you believe something fanatically and you hold to it sincerely, people are all, well, man, that, that's a, what a great person. What a great Hindu. What a great Buddhist. What a great Muslim. He's willing to blow himself up and crash into a building for his faith. What a sincere faith. No, sincerity without truth is worthless. It's harmful. The truth revealed in Scripture is foundational to both justification and sanctification. It is to be learned and believed, for it is the source and unifying factor of the whole Christian life. It is the first indispensable part of a Christian's armor, for if one does not know or believe what Scripture teaches, he will be easy prey for the devil. It would be like entering battle without sight or sound. Nothing but biblical truth regarding both faith and life, firmly believed and obeyed, can bring victory over the powerful demonic hosts. And you'll notice there'll be these television shows, which are run by liberal atheists, basically, like Bill Maher used to have this show. And uh, they'll put a, a quote, somebody who's supposed to be a Christian or somebody who's supposed to be conservative on there who's a conservative Christian. And they always pick a moron who doesn't stand on the principles of Scripture but tries to argue about good old-fashioned family values or natural law. Well, no, we have special revelation. We have the truth revealed. That's our sword. Our sword is not natural law because natural law means virtually anything to anybody. Natural law has to be defined by Scripture before you can use natural law correctly. The Greeks believed in natural law, and they were a bunch of idolaters and pagans. <clears throat> if one does, knows what the Bible teaches but does not really believe it, then he will be open to compromises with this world and paganism. He gives the devil something to work with. If a professing Christian ignores what Scripture says or believes that it does not apply to him, then his life will be adrift on the sea of heathenism. Syncretism and idolatry flow directly from a lack of knowledge and or faith in the teaching of sacred scripture. There are people who just flat out are atheists. They don't believe in, they don't believe in the Bible at all. They think it's a myth. And there are people who say, well, I believe in it, but, you know, gee, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm in love with this woman over here. God wouldn't mind if I had sex with her. Or I'm in love with this woman. God wouldn't mind if I divorced my wife and run off with this woman. People talk like that. 
You remember Amy Grant when she she committed adultery and left her husband? They asked her how could she could how could she, how could she justify that? She's a professing Christian. How can you justify something so obviously unbiblical? I had to follow my heart. That's how, that was her answer. I I had to follow my heart. And uh, Woody Allen is probably an atheist. When he was asked about his incest and running off with his daughter, um, he said the same thing. You got to follow your heart. You have to be sincere with your heart. Well, that's paganism. <laughs> that's totally anti-biblical. <clears throat> this biblical teaching explains why modern evangelicalism is so saltless, corrupt, worldly, and syncretistic. The meat of the word is ignored, and people praise ignorance and immaturity. Now, my best friend in high school, I had two best friends, one of my best friends in high school. Uh, of course, I became a Pentecostal. I became a charismatic Arminian dispensationalist. And I witnessed to my friend, and he became the same thing. Well, I, through God's grace and mercy, I read B.B. Warfield, and I became a five-point Calvinist and became Reformed. This is the late 70s. He did, he did not. What's funny, he read, he read Pink's The Sovereignty of God and became a Calvinist for about two weeks, and then the church taught him that it was all wrong, and he went back to being your typical Arminian. Well, he goes to this church, and uh, he's been going there for well over 30 years, and I, I saw him again. He, was, he hadn't learned anything. The sermons, they're not just baby food, they're just unbiblical nonsense. He hadn't learned anything. You need the meat of the word. You need maturity. The, the meat of the word is ignored and people praise ignorance and immaturity. Compromises with pagan culture are made on a wide scale because people are taught to accept concepts of neutrality and pietism, unbiblical pietism, that are really forms of cultural surrender. Okay, we're, what are we? A, we're a couple of weeks away from uh, what they call Christmas, which is supposed to be Christ's birthday. And it's universally praised among even Reformed Christians today and evangelicals. To them, it's, to them, it's like the holiest day of the whole year. That's nothing but worldliness. That's nothing but Satanism. It's totally corrupt. First of all, it's not commanded in Scripture. Second of all, it's a lie. He couldn't have been born in the middle of winter. He started serving his ministry at the age of 30. He was born probably in the fall because he died in the spring. His ministry lasted three and a half years. He couldn't have been born in the middle of winter. And we're not commanded to celebrate Christmas. We're commanded to obey the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, which is every Sunday of every week. But the church is worldly because they ignore the teaching of Scripture and they follow our society, our culture. The Apostolic Church transformed the Roman world because Christians were deeply concerned about doctrine and putting the truth into daily practice. They regarded the scriptures, they searched the scriptures daily to know what was heard was tr the truth, Acts 17, 11 to 12, and did not accept paganism or humanism into the church. I'll never forget when we were, uh, we were living in a different state and I, I gave this lady, we knew this lady who raised chickens and stuff, and I gave her some sermon tapes of your typical good, solid, reformed sermons. And she, after she listened to him, she said to me, she said, why, why in the world are you so interested in knowing exactly what the scripture teaches? Why do you go into all this detail? As if the word of God isn't important. Of course, she was Pentecostal, so they believe in further revelations of the spirit, which is totally un unscriptural. <clears throat> Truth can only be cherished, praised, and made the foundation for faith and life when it is first known. Those who call themselves Christians but who really do not want to know it. They don't want to know what the scripture teaches. And they speak of it as unimportant, reveal that they really regard the truth as worthless. They don't hold the scriptures in high regard. They don't really believe it's the word of God given to us by God who created the universe as a gift. It's not that important. Let it collect dust. Who cares? It is very easy to deceive people with lies when they are already ignorant of the truth. They are like Jacob, who could not tell the difference between profound beauty and ugliness because he was in the darkness of his tent. 
He couldn't see. He, he was in the darkness. He didn't know whether it was Rachel or Leah. He had no idea until the next morning when the light was up. And behold, it was Leah. Genesis 29, 25. They're like the fool who is overjoyed with a find of gold, but who has really only gathered up worthless fool's gold because he did not know the difference. Christians must know and understand that many false doctrines are just as dangerous and deadly as immorality. <coughs> People don't seem to believe that anymore. Doctrine, oh, doctrine's not important. What's important is practical matters. That's, that's a completely ignorant, foolish statement. Because you can't, you can't have biblical practice without orthodoxy. You can't have bi biblical practice without orthodox teaching and orthodox ethics. A false view of God, Jesus, salvation, the Bible, repentance, sanctification, and many other crucial teachings will send one to hell just as much as robbery, murder, fornication, and adultery. Jesus himself threatened those in the church who followed Jezebel with death, Revelation 2.23. Those who are not sound in the faith are ripe for demonic destruction. The Apostle John warned us, whosoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not know God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. I forgot to write it down. I think it's 1 John 4, 9-11. I forgot to write it down. The anti-doctrinal, false ecumenical spirit of our age is demonic to the very core. When I was a little kid, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I went to a big, pretty liberal Roman Catholic church, and they built a uh, synagogue next door, a liberal synagogue next to the Roman Catholic church, and they had services together, they exchanged pulpits. You know, I like the Jews as a people, but if you don't believe in Christ, your religion is demonic to the core. It's satanic. And Jesus said in Revelation, this is the words of Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, those who call themselves Jews, but are not, he's talking about persecutors of the church, they call themselves Jews, but they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. That's what, Je that's what Paul, Jesus, not even, not Paul, of course, it would have been by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus said that himself about the Jews of his day. These are the Pharisaical Jews who gave us the Talmud, the 35 volumes of the Babylonian Talmud, which is satanic to the core. Do we have a lot more in common with an Orthodox Jew like, like Ben Shapiro than an atheist who, in favor of abortion and sodomite rights? Of course we do. But it's a surface agreement. It's a surface knowledge. The foundation is not there. The foundation has to be the Word of God. The foundation has to be Christ. <clears throat> Peter also warned us a false teacher who, who's, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies into the church. They will deny Christ as he is revealed in Scripture and bring on themselves swift destruction. 2 Peter 2, 1-2 Such men are the instruments of Satan working subtly and deceitfully, causing the way of truth to be blasphemed. 2 Peter 2.2 2. You don't confuse some libertarian or some conservative Republican who's on YouTube or on the Internet, who's extremely popular and says many, many wonderful good things that I agree with regarding politics. Don't, con don't confuse that with somebody who's got foundational truths regarding life and religion. They don't. Yeah, we have a surface agreement. That's it. Doctrinal errors are even more dangerous than ignorance. For once men are convinced that a lie is the truth, they will defend that lie with a dogmatic vehemence. It is one thing to eat bland food with no nutritional value, and another thing to eat food laced with deadly poison. With ignorance, one is adrift on the sea toward destruction. 
But with false damnable doctrine, one is on a rapid stream toward hell. You both end up in the same place, but one takes you there much faster. The holy word of God is grossly perverted, so that real truth is despised, and the gospel to them is an aroma of death leading to death. 2 Corinthians 2.16 Therefore Paul commands us to avoid false teachers, who, and this is Romans 16.18, who by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. The Apostle tells us to be mature in the faith and have a solid knowledge of the truth, so that we should no longer be children, this is Ephesians 4.14, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You say, come on, Christians, they know what's going on, do they? Most don't. The Federal Vision comes along in 2002, which is shepherdism, the doctrine of Norman Shepherd, which mixes justification and sanctification, which teaches that we're saved not simply by faith alone, but by faith and faithfulness, which is a form of salvation by works. And people were confused. People didn't want to condemn them because they set forth their doctrines subtly. They set forth their doctrines with equivocations. They set forth their doctrines uh, very cleverly. And people were fooled. And they were teaching salvation by faith plus works, which is a form of Romanism. It's a damnable heresy. And yet people didn't have enough theological sophistication and Bible knowledge to go, there's something wrong here. This is bad. And not only did people not have that knowledge, but they got angry with the ministers and elders who stood up against it and said, hey, this is bad stuff. This is heresy. Works are necessary. Absolutely. We need to repent. But we're saved solely by faith, solely by Christ. Sanctification is always connected to justification, but they're completely separate categories. Once you mix them, you believe in salvation by the works of the law, which Paul condemned in virtually every book of the New Testament. Children, generally speaking, are gullible. They lack knowledge and experience and consequently are easily led astray. They tend to accept everything they hear as truth. Why do, you want to, why do you want to know that the modernists, the liberals, the progressives, the Democrats want to control all the public schools? Because they're raising up little dedicated statists who will vote the way they want. You control the... And Hitler, there's a great quote from Hitler, it's in a Gary DeMard book that I have somewhere. Hitler says, you can believe whatever you want. Give us your children. It won't matter what you believe 30 years from now. We own the future. You give us your children, we'll own the future. They lack biblical wisdom. We must, therefore, not only learn the truth, but also how to apply it to daily life. The person who is thoroughly planted on solid biblical doctrine and believes and cherishes it will not be led astray by demonic teachers. The truth of Scripture must be our anchor against the raging sea of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I should have taken the time to look it up, but there's a passage in the Prophets, and I think there's a passage in Revelation, which applies. But the wicked are often pictured in Scripture as a raging sea, a stormy sea, frothing, because they have no, there's no there there, there's no foundation. It's all relative. It's, it's, it's chaos. It's a complete chaos, as where uh, the picture of heaven and the picture of God's order is a sea of glass, peace, tranquility, perfect justice. We must engrave the truth on our memory, understand it thoroughly, and then apply it habitually. As our goal as warriors for Christ is to learn and practice the truth so regularly that it becomes second nature. When you get in your car, even if you drive a stick shift, you're used to driving a stick shift, you don't have to get in your car and think, oh, I, how do I drive now? How do I do? It's, you, you don't even think about it. You just drive perfectly because you've done it so many times. It's part of your nature. And that's the way you want to be about obedience. Like Joseph, when, when the Potiphar's wife hey, hey, tries to get him in the sack, and without even having to think for a split second, he leaves his coat sitting there and he runs out of the house because he's got a habitual righteous way of thinking and acting. 
We need to think and act biblically, spontaneously, so that when demonic attacks come, we are ready and automatically stand firm. In addition, by thoroughly training our intellect with the truths of Scripture, we will be able to have mastery over our emotions. The demonic forces often seek to control men by using their affections. People are told to follow their feelings and that they must act consistently with their emotions. But such a view is satanic. It's totally unbiblical and dangerous. Our intellect. We believe in the primacy of the intellect. Our intellect is to be thoroughly trained by Scripture. And then our feelings are to be subjugated to the truth, even when our emotions are not in line with Scripture. You're not always going to want to do what Scripture tells you to do. You might get old. Your wife might get old. And you're not all excited about her all the time. Does that mean you love her any less? Of course not. Does that mean you get to go run off with some young lady like the pagans are doing? Absolutely not. Does that mean you get to have mistresses? Absolutely not. You don't follow your feelings. You follow the scripture. A Christian must always follow God's teachings and moral law, even when his flesh does not want to, and his emotions may, not, may be in the wrong place. The high rates of fornication, adultery, and unlawful divorce among professing Christians today is due to a refusal to subjugate unlawful feelings and attitudes to an intellect completely trained by Scripture. We must have truth in the inward parts, for the heart and mind is the control center of our whole being. If we train our minds and always act on the truth, even when we do not want to, or our emotions are not fully on board, then eventually our feelings will be in the right place. You know what's really good about this is uh, Jay Adams. I have a bunch of Jay Adams books, and I'm missing a bunch of them because I keep loaning them out and not getting them back. But Jay Adams is very good about this. What do you do when you don't want to obey Scripture? What do you do when you don't feel like obeying Scripture? You submit to Scripture all the more, and you pray for God to bend your heart and your mind, and you will, your feelings will follow. The truth must, must have authority and a full influence over the whole man all of the time. We must believe in and really love the truth so that we treat it as letters engraved in granite, not words written in sand. It is God's truth. It is his love gift to the church so men can have a blessed, wonderful, happy life. You know, this hedonism, this modern hedonism we have, <coughs> where people go out and they act like whores. Young people go out and they have sex with a bunch of people and act like whores. And they take often take drugs. And they live for the pleasures of the flesh. And then if they do get married, the guy gets married to a woman who's had sex with 30 different guys. She's a slut. He's marrying a whore. Now, yes, yeah, she can repent and become a Christian. She can become a good wife. But that's not the path to happiness. That's not the good life. It's a life of chaos. It's a life of calamity. It's a life of hardship. To not learn and submit to Scripture is to rob oneself of covenant blessings and leave oneself open to the savage attacks of the devil. To place this crucial piece of armor around our waists, we need to develop some important practices. First, and these are very simple principles, we must study the Bible in solid Christian theology books so we have a solid biblical understanding of its contents. <clears throat> You're all familiar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in history. Calvinistic Baptist, super good preacher. I've got 66 volumes of his sermons up there. Um, he would read Matthew Henry's five volumes, the, his commentary in the whole Bible, once a year. The whole thing once a year. And if you read his sermons, you'll find him quoting Matthew Henry uh, without even knowing, perhaps even knowing he's quoting Matthew Henry. But he read it once a year. Because he wanted a full, balanced understanding of God's, the Word of God's contents. This task of learning Scripture is not hard to do if one places an understanding of the Word above entertainment and worldly distractions. Oh, I'm too tired to read the Bible. And then somebody will go watch TV for four hours or play video games for four hours or five hours or six hours. 
Come on, where, where are your priorities? If professing Christians learn the Bible thoroughly and solid biblical Reformed theology, there would probably be a revival in this country, a revival of true religion in the United States. Second, and these are obvious things, I can't believe anybody would disagree with these things, one must attend a church where true biblical worship and a solid faithful exposition of the word takes place. The church is not an entertainment center, and it's not a social club. Most people go to church nowadays for the entertainment or because it's a good hangout. It's where they get to meet people. Now, I have no problem if you need fellowship and you want to go meet people. That's good. But that's not the purpose of the church. Not the main purpose, anyway. It is a training center for godly dominion and victory over the forces of evil. Fellowship with other believers, solid Christians, is crucial. But the ministry of the word is primary. If the preached word is not biblical, the whole ship will go down. And you go on YouTube and the most popular preaches are horrible. There are a few exceptions. MacArthur's really good. Bochum, or however you say his name, the flag fella from the south. I, I guess, I don't know where he's from, but he's good. Uh, there's there's some exceptions. R.C. Sproul's obviously excellent, but there's they're few and far between, and they're not near as popular as these charismatic heretics. Third, <clears throat> we must never hold to a theological or ethical position that cannot be proved by a historic, historical, grammatical, theological interpretation of sacred scripture. Traditional Protestant exegesis. In other words, our presuppositions and the very foundation of all of our thoughts and actions must be derived from the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, 2 Peter 1.20-21. Sola Scriptura. The Bible's our sole authority for faith and life, for doctrine and practice, for theology, for ethics. We must always reject human autonomy and instead strive, always strive to think God's thoughts after him. Our thinking must be receptively reconstructive and never autonomous or creative. If you're painting a painting, yeah, be creative. If you're writing a song, be creative. If you're making theology, you're not to be creative. If you're having a philosophy for life or ethics, you're not to be creative. You're to stick to exactly what the scripture teaches. <clears throat> Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And then fourth, as we study scripture, we must continuously pray for the illumination and guidance of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14-16, 1 John 2.20. There's 150 or so different denominations in the United States. The vast majority of churches are full of heretics, and they teach nothing but heresy and garbage. That's sad. It didn't used to be that way at one time, but that's the way it is today. So you better learn and know what it teaches so when somebody says something, you can go, well, that's not right. Here's what the Bible says. Fifth, we must always approach Scripture with humility and a submissive spirit. Consequently, we must never compromise the truths in Scripture or its ethical principles for the sake of a humanistic pseudo-unity or pragmatism. There is never a good reason to tolerate errors in doctrine or practice. A unity not founded on the truth of Scripture is a worldly, demonic unity. And I see this even in Reformed churches. They get pragmatic. They want to be big. They want to grow. And so they start compromising this and they start compromising that. Well, yeah, I, I, if you, I, I can get you really great rock bands and dancers and all kinds of entertainment and you'll have a big church. But if you're not obeying God... I don't care how big your church is. God doesn't care with bigness. He'd rather have five faithful people than 10,000 unfaithful people who are not really Christians. Sixth, there must be a willingness to publicly confess and defend the truths of Scripture. There is no such thing as a private or secret Christian. Our Lord required that we confess him before men, that is, unbelievers. I forgot to write the passage down. 
To profess that one is a Christian, yet to refuse to confess and defend the faith before the world, is a case of self-deception, hypocrisy, and cowardice. If you confess Christ before men, especially if you're like in college, let's say, or you're around a bunch of unbelievers, young unbelievers, are you going to be popular? No. All my old friends from high school, I was in a big rock band. I was in a very successful rock band. I was very popular. I had tons of friends, et cetera, et cetera. They all think I'm a total fool. They all think I'm an idiot, and they mock me behind my back because I became a Christian, and I laid it all aside. And my attitude is, so be it. Who cares? Who cares what they think? They're going to rot in hell. I'm not going to let, be influenced by the way pagans think. Now, sure, I don't like people telling me I'm an idiot, but you don't compromise. Jesus requires both the religion of the heart and the mouth. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.10. 10. And then, of course, remember 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, let us hold fast the belt of truth in the face of temptation, danger, and death. So that's the belt of truth. I went into a lot of detail. But it's nothing compared to some of the Puritans, where they'll, they'll go on for 50 pages. But I hope this is helpful. This is criti critical. It's critical that we don't compromise. It's critical that we know scripture. It's critical that we know doctrine. It's very distressing when somebody in the Reformed faith is popular and they start teaching something that's totally new and totally heretical, and people don't have enough scriptural knowledge or theological knowledge to look at that and go, that's bad. There's something wrong here. When I first heard the tapes from the Auburn Avenue Conference in 2002, Doug Wilson, Barack, uh, Richard Lusk, uh, the pastor of that church, uh, Wilkins, I knew immediately that these people were teaching, what they were teaching is Norman Shepard's heresy. Where Norman Shepard does not make a proper distinction between faith and the works that come from faith. Sanctification and holiness and perseverance are fruits of faith. They do not contribute one iota to our salvation. And to say that they do is to take a step into Romanism, Roman Catholicism. It's a step toward Rome. It's heresy. So let us learn from this. Gird on that belt of truth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible teaching. Your word is, has everything we need. Give us a love of it, Lord. Cause us to want to study it. Cause us to want to learn it. And place it in our hearts that we may not sin against you so that we could stand in the day of evil, so that we could stand against the assaults of devil, the fiery darts of Satan. Help us, Lord, for we are surrounded. We live in a culture that is totally dedicated to selfish pleasures and hedonism. So help us, Lord, to be holy in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.